Hello and welcome. It's lovely to see such a crowd here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tamar Garb, and I am the director here of the Institute of Advanced Studies. And this uh, particular evening forms part of a series of events that we've been curating and organizing here um, over the three and a half years that we've been in existence. Uh, our aim is to showcase and to discuss books that we find of interest. We've had a lot of books produced by UCL authors and also books with which we want to engage written by people from outside of UCL. So usually we have some kind of a format in which we talk about the book, engage with the author, and then we celebrate its appearance. And we hope you're going to all uh, stay with us for that celebration at the end of the evening when we will share a glass of wine and Terry has agreed to sign some books for those of you who want to buy some. There's a table with books at the back. So that's the way in which the evening is going to work. Um, it's my incredible privilege and pleasure to uh, welcome Terry in particular um, to the IAS for a number of reasons, not only because I think this is a very, very beautiful and extraordinarily moving and complex and interesting book, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing Eva engage with it and to hearing Terry and Eva in conversation and also to open it up to all of you. Uh, some of you will have read the book already and I'm sure we'll have questions and observations to make and hopefully we'll be able to engage in a very open-ended discussion about the book after the more formal dialogue has um, completed. But I've known Terry for a very long time, probably longer than anybody else in this room, in that um, we are old family friends who used to have family holidays together in our childhood mm. on a place called the Breda River, which some of you who come from South Africa um, will know. The room is full of South Africans and there's a <laughs> wonderful, warm, generous and generative spirit in the place, which makes me feel very much at home right here in London, but in a kind of partial South African enclosure. Uh, welcome to, to all of you who are not South African. There are people here who uh, are interested in the book for very many reasons. We have Poles in the audience, we have Brits in the audience, we have all sorts of people interested in engaging with it and with its thematics, but also in the very interesting way in which it plays with the visual image and text. There's something quite unique about the way in which this book asks us to think about the way that photographs generate meaning or don't, the failure of photographs to signify our own fantasies and projections and wishes to glean from photographs that which we wish to see in them. And also a very subtle and interesting navigation of different forms of photographic practice. In a sense, I said to Terry as we were discussing it the other day, um, it's a it, in a way, it's a kind of digital exploration of analog photography. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about the book and which we'll come to talk about is this relationship between the digital and the analog, the way in which Terry probes the photographic material almost with her finger. And I was reminded in thinking about that, about the origins of the word digit as a finger. We think of the digital so much as something which is about this kind of abstracted way in which our, old our own world now deals with images. But when we think of it haptically and in relation to the body, there is absolutely the pressure throughout the book to open the photograph with one's finger as one does on a screen. So this relationship between screen and page is intrinsically part of the book. And I think we're going to talk about all these themes. Um, Terry herself has been engaged with thinking about photographic practices for 
um, a very long time, but not only photographic practices. She trained as a visual artist, in fact, um, at the Michaela School of Fine Art, where we were students together in the 1970s. She then went on to California School of Arts in San Francisco, um, and uh, she's also more recently done an MA in creative writing at WITS. So the book comes out of this complex and very, very committed engagement, uh, lifelong, in a way, engagement, both with image, but also now increasingly uh, with text. And she's uh, one of those visual artists slash activists who's worked in multiple media with essays on photography, thinking about the relationship of art to uh, the public sphere. She's worked on um, academic catalogues and journals. She's co-published books, for example, Johannesburg Circa Now, which she did with Joe Ratcliffe, and the book Hotel Yeovil, chronicling uh, migration within uh, the context of Johannesburg, the city where she now lives. She describes Everyone is Present as a book of, or a work of creative nonfiction, itself a really interesting um, genre to think with and to think about the relationship between document, fiction, creativity, <coughs> and how these uh, different modes of apprehending the world and the past come together in this particularly idiosyncratic and extraordinary way is one of the things that I hope we're going to discuss together tonight. So a very, very big welcome, Terry. We are pleased and privileged to have you with us and really looking forward to engaging with, with you in the book. Also Im immensely um, pleased and grateful to Eva Hoffman uh, for agreeing to be the interlocutor, the chief interlocutor in tonight's uh, discussion. Uh, I'm sure that almost everybody in the room is familiar with Eva's work. Uh, she grew up in Krakow in Poland, and of course the context in which so much of this book takes place is through the imagining and the encounter and the re-engagement with the Poland of um, uh, uh, Terry's grandparents and indeed of her infant mother, her small mother, as she calls her repeatedly throughout the book, a rather beautiful way of conceiving of this child. Um, so Eva grew up in, in Krakow, as I said, before emigrating in her teens to Canada and then later on to the United States. Um, after receiving a PhD in literature from Harvard University, she worked as senior editor and literary critic of the New York Times, and she's taught at various British and American universities. She's best known to all of us, I should think, for her really important um, writing her books such as Lost in Translation, Exit into History, After Such Knowledge, and a more recent small, interesting, philosophical, speculative primer called Time, as well as two novels, The Secret and Illuminations. She's a broadcaster. She works in uh, public programs for the BBC and it also indeed for Polish television. And she's lectured on a wide range of subjects um, from exile to historical memory, to cross-cultural relations and other contemporary issues. Um, we've been hosting uh, Eva here at UCL for the last couple of years, where she's been a honorary visiting professor and has been working with us on a number of academic programs and projects. So this is part of that continued and ongoing relationship. So that's my introduction, Eva. We look forward to hearing the conversation and um, I'll hand it over to you, Eva. Thank you. Um, thank you, Tamar. Um, I am delighted to be here and to have been asked to be in conversation with Terry <coughs> about her um, 
richly interesting and very original book uh, called Everyone is Present, a title, by the way, which gains strata of poignancy and implication as the narrative progresses and as it registers various kinds of absence as well as various kinds of presence. Um, for me, this is... <clears throat> for me, this has been a chance uh, to think, among other things, it's a, first of all, it's a book which has very personal and, and, and uh, rich associations for me because of this nearly shared history. Um, <clears throat> but it also has been a chance to think about photography as I have not often done before and then to engage with the, um, uh, with the uh, kind of information that photographs convey and text conveys. Um, so, but it seems to me, I just want to ask <coughs> Terry very briefly um, on my part to talk about the book, uh, because it seems to me that, that there are two stories implicit here. There is the story of the book itself, um, how you arrived at the form, uh, which I think very unusually gives equal weight to text and photography. Um, so, so how you how you did that, um, and also um, what you discovered uh, in the in the uh, course of writing it. Um, but also, there is a story told within the book, which is the story of your family, a family which left, Jewish family which left Poland on the very eve of World War II, and the family's uh, long journey after which uh, they arrived in South Africa. Um, so I think this is all I want to say, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about these two stories, the story of the book, the story within the book, and show us some photographs. Okay, I'll do that over there. <clears throat> this is where I need Albert. <laughs> oh, there, yeah. Um, Sorry, just to put it in there. Um, thank you, Tamar, for the invitation. Thank you so much to Eva for agreeing to be in conversation. Thank you, Albert, for all the hard work of setting this up. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, some of you in this room know, know me and my art practice, and, and some of you don't, so forgive me if I, I say things that some of you know well about me. But I'm, I'm principally a visual artist, and I have had, you know, upward of 25, 30 years of a practice that, that moves between making work for galleries and museums and making projects that are often executed in the public realm and depend upon a collaboration, participation with a particular group of people or a site that has some significance in relation to critical social, political issues, um, um, issues to do with women, to do with, with, with forced migration, xenophobia, and, and, and other things. But what links both parts of my practice 
is an abiding interest in photography and most particularly family and vernacular photography and the meaning that we make of such images and the ways in which we mediate, we tell us the stories of our lives through these images. Um, I um, am going to tell you a little bit about how I came to make the book, but the book, the book grew out of this practice, which um, has always, I've, I've changed media depending on the project. I, I, I tend to sort of find the right media for the job. And this book grew out of certain preoccupations that have been with me for as long as I can remember. And, and I have to say at this point, and have to thank Eva Hoffman particularly, um, I think you said your After Such Knowledge was published in 2003, is that correct? And at that time, I was grappling with certain things in my life that were, that were laying me quite low. And somebody recommended that I read Eva's book. And it was a complete lighthouse. It enabled me to understand, um, I suppose, what I would call um, transgenerational inheritance. You know, while I may not have, both my, both, both my parents came to South Africa quite late. My, my father in the 30s and my mother, you know, as ever, mentioned, they left on the eve of World War II. They came to South Africa as young children, and they left large extended families behind in, in Central and Eastern Europe, all of whom were, all of whom were murdered, and, all, and about whom they never, ever, ever spoke. Um, and I grappled with, 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 with certain issues and certain questions that emerged in different bodies of work over the years. In, in things sort of popped up, peeped out. There are photographs that I use in this book that I've drawn, that I've etched, that I've used in installations, that I've projected. I, you know, and I feel as though finally in this book, um, the form that I chose, writing as a medium, enabled me to express what I think it is that I, that I came here to say. And I, when I say came here to say, I don't mean UCL, I mean in my body of work. The, the book so far feels like the best expression of what it is, the preoccupations that have run through my body of work. Um, so without, there isn't time to show you past work, but I'll tell you how this book came about. So in front of you is a slide, probably Eva, I think, is the only person in the room who might be able to read and understand what is written there. But my maternal grandfather, Yashik Kalia, who's the main character of my book, was an introspective intellectual who was living the wrong life for so many reasons. He had an extremely domineering father, who prevented him from pursuing medical studies even before Jews weren't allowed to register. Um, he insisted that he stay at home in Broadair. He participate in the family business. And my grandfather was longed to study medicine and most particularly psychoanalysis. Um, this would have been prevented in any event. Um, and he kept these daily diaries, which my mother, after he died, had the presence of mind and you know, she, like me, uh, attaches a lot of significance to objects with their roots in the past. And she held onto 
these diaries and, and the handful of, of family photographs that survive from their past lives. Um, and my parents emigrated to Los Angeles in the late 1970s and the diaries went with my mother some years later after her mother died and she packed up her house in Cape Town. And I used to, on every visit to my parents, sort through them, arrange them chronologically, scour them for the odd word in English, um, and try and persuade her to give them to me to have translated, which, which she never would. The first year of the diaries had been translated. After my grandfather died, my grandmother translated them entirely in her own favor. She edited out anything that was critical or unflattering, which we only discovered when my mother took that same first year and had them translated by an impartial, independent person. So one year had been translated, but I longed to know what these pages contained. Um, and about six years ago, my mother agreed to hand them over to me. And uh, through a writing fellowship and a number of grants, I was able to afford their translation. And, and then the problem was, you know, these diaries ran from 1939 to 1973. How, how to circumscribe how to how to map the part of them that I was that I would use in my work and so I limited them to the war years to the years between 1939 where they begin my grandfather looking out the window of their apartment in what was then called Bielsko in Poland which is 30 kilometers from Krakow and um, I uh, continued um, followed their journey, but I followed their journey through using as the skeleton, as the spine of my project, photographs that had been taken. Um, I won't say too much more about the book itself. I think that will, that will come about in the conversation. But Eva asked me how the, book, how the book came about. It sort of grew out of my practice. It, uh, I decided to try and write and um, became very absorbed in writing and reading and writing my reading of photographs. Um, the other question, what I discovered in the course of writing, I discovered that writing was as difficult as any of the other media that I'd ever tried my hand at. But that, through this process, um, it opened up possibilities for me in the interpretation, the, the understanding, the reading of um, this. It, it, it enabled me to better understand my psychic inheritance and things that had been, I felt, delivered into my unconscious and never spoken. Of course, entirely my own interpretation. I'm sure if I had a conversation with my mother about certain things, and I have had, she wouldn't agree with me. But it has enabled an understanding of a, of a an understanding and an acceptance and a, and a lightening of a difficult psychic inheritance. Um, so these are the diaries. I just had to show you what extraordinary objects they are. My grandfather handmade each, each section, each separate part is one month. Um, 
and he hand cut them. Uh, there's a close-up so that you can see the edges. He really took quite a lot of care, and I've also thought quite a lot about what it means to, to write in a, in, a, in a diary like this. What, what was this, what did this space mean to him? And um, we, we can talk about that. Um, and these were the sorts of photographs. So this photograph has hung over me all my life. And until I used it as the introductory photograph to the book, and I'll, I'll shortly read an excerpt that circulates around this image, um, I hadn't understood how I could use these photographs to tell enormous stories going backwards and forwards in time until I began to read them in relation to my grandfather's diaries and, and the project that, that, that suddenly began to grow. <clears throat> um, I think, let me leave it at that and I'll read an extract. just as a matter of interest. So that, I'll shortly, my reading will contextualize that photograph. This is a photograph that my grandfather shot from the window of their apartment um, moments before they left Poland. And this is exactly the same view shot by nobody, shot by Google in 2013. So that's 1939 and that's 2013. One of the essays in the book talks about the difference between an image that is, sh an analog image that is shot by someone that has a memory and an image that is shot by Google, by no one, and has no memory at all. But those are the kinds of things that, that, that I use these, these photographs to explore. There's a particularly enigmatic image amongst them. Can you hear? Yeah. There's a particularly enigmatic image amongst them. It's a perfect domestic scene, an image of a man, a woman, and a child made more idyllic by its leisurely outdoor setting. It looks like balmy summer weather, but not too hot, because the man is wearing what appears to be a woolen suit with socks and shoes. He has very large feet in those leather soles, or perhaps it's just the angle of the photograph that accentuates them. He's not wearing a tie, and his shirt is open at the neck. His hair looks carefully groomed, oiled, and combed. The woman in the photograph is gracefully curved towards him, and she's sitting cross-legged and sideways on her chair in proximity to both the man and the child. Her own neatly coiffed hairstyle has a wide and well-defined side parting. She looks demure and also elegant in a shapely short-sleeved dress and white high-heeled summer sandals. Her toenails are polished. Her arms are folded into her lap at the wrists and we see her ring and the leather strap of her gold watch. The child, with the same well-defined hair parting, is comfortably wedged between them, while most of the bottom half of her body is concealed by the man's legs and the structure of his deck chair. Her little chest and upper torso are clearly visible. 
She's wearing a white dress with spaghetti straps and her chubby arms are bare. Just before this photograph was shot, the child was playing on the lawn slightly outside this frame, to the right of that unassuming shrub. An animated game with flower petals, leaves, grass and twigs that she'd arranged into a series of crooked triangles as she talked to herself in two differently pitched voices. The man was reclining in his chair, engrossed in a sensual and languorous conversation with the woman, his eyes half closed against the glare of the sun, paying attention to his swelling desire to touch her and the diamond-shaped pricks of pink and orange color that he sensed just beneath his eyelids. His arms rested lightly on the wooden armrests. He was feeling warm, peaceful, and deeply relaxed. The little girl looked up from her play. She sat very still and concentrated about, upon watching them for a while. She had to tell them something. He interrupted this repose, sat up and arched forward, gently holding the child around her waist, and listened with attention as she breathily whispered into his ear. His large inclined head and the sharp angle of his nose obscure most of her face. But it is clear, <coughs> sorry, I just lost it. Um, but it is clear that she is leaning in to tell him a secret. My grandmother, excluded and observing them, is smiling in a private internal life sort of way. But it is also possible that she is masking her irritation at having been interrupted. The hand that is visible is clenched. Or perhaps she's simply pleased and moved by the familiarity between the child and the man. Oops, I need that image back. <laughs> I, long to be able to sit, I long to be able to sit inside this photograph. That one. That one. I long to be able to sit inside this photograph. There's the most perfect, unoccupied space on that white painted bench on the terrace path just above them. It looks so comfortable and inviting in the soft summer sun. I would sit there very quietly and not draw attention to myself. I would gaze over their three heads at the couple I can see reclining on the striped deck chairs just beyond them. She seems to be sleeping and has her eyes closed, and he's reading the newspaper. And I'd consider the rustic charm of the hand-hewn wooden picket fence the collage geometry of the fields and the pastures and the large herd of sheep grazing on the green and luscious glade between the mountain foothills in the near distance. I would look past them right over their heads and pretend to be minding my own business, but I would be straining, listening with all my might in the hope of catching just a hint, a trail, just a whisper of that conversation. The photograph was taken in 1939 in the garden of the Yashni Palace Hotel in Zakopane, a resort town in the Tatra Mountains of south-central Poland, just a few miles from the Slovakian border. The hotel is still there. You can find it online, trading under the same name and upon a certain old-world charm. It's at 24 Kazimierza Tetmajera, and when I checked up on it recently, there was an off-season special on offer, a double room for $53 a night. The front of the building looks exactly as it must have more than 75 years ago. And on the website's home page, photographs flash and alternate, showing it surrounded by a particularly clear blue sky and picturesque mounds of clean white snow. The ornate chandeliers and oversized Persian carpets in the lounge and dining rooms, the intricate herringbone pattern of the parquet floors, the red velvet curtains, 
the sumptuous floor-to-ceiling mirrors in their gilded frames, the gold embellishment of the ceiling, the grand piano, the doors to the bedroom, which flank spacious blue carpeted flights of stairs with carved wooden balustrades are all closed. These passages, these rooms, and some of their objects, they must have been there then. There's a compelling character called George Weiss in Nicole Krauss's novel, Great House. He's a famous antiques dealer who lives in an old stone house in Jerusalem. But he's originally from Budapest. His business life has been dedicated to the detective work of finding special pieces of furniture and art that were plundered by the Nazis and their collaborators. He searches the world for objects that are remembered by his clients who were their original owners. He says, it's true, I can't bring the dead back to life, but I can bring back the chair they once sat in, the bed where they slept, the bed that one man remembers as the place where his soul was overwhelmed, is to another man just a bed. And when it breaks or goes out of style or is no longer of use to him, he throws it away. But before he dies, the man whose soul was overwhelmed needs to lie down in that bed one more time. He comes to me, he has a look in his eyes, and I understand him. So even if it no longer exists, I find it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The living rooms in the photographs I find on the Yashni Palace website feel as though George Weiss has had his hand in them and I need him now to help me find my way through the hotel from its grand double staircase entrance in the front of the building to the open doorway above that white bench in the back. This is where my maternal grandparents, Yashik and Tusha Kalia, their two young daughters, Sophie and Leonia, with their governess and their extended family and friends customarily spent their long summer holidays. The women and children would settle in for a two-month period and the men would commute for weekends. But this photograph in my family's album records a day in the summer of July or August 1939. And at the very outset of what was to become one of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century, my grandmother was fucking Dr. Lacks. He's the man in the photograph, and that child is my then four-year-old little mother. This photograph masks a secret, a secret that is too big for this page. <clears throat> Perhaps if you wouldn't mind to the glasses. Yes. Um, well, I think that, you know, the very ending of that passage puts you on notice that this is not a sentimental story. Uh, this is a story of um, difficult family relationships, difficult family conflicts, uh, which continued um, even as the family um, managed very likely uh, to uh, escape and, uh, to, with 10 members, with its 10 members, and as it traveled uh, from uh, Poland to South Africa. Um, <clears throat> the conflicts did continue. So it's a very, very multi-layered and complex story. Um, 
But you're a very discreet biographer, <laughs> and particularly a very discreet autobiographer. Uh, and so, in a way, you have answered one of the questions which I had throughout reading this book, which is, was there a kind of psychological transmission of this history? Did you feel that this was a part of your history? It is not something that you talk about uh, in the book very much. Um, can I so, extend yeah. that? Can I, can, may I extend Please, that question? Yeah. Because I, when I read that sentence with the expletive, which is the only expletive you use in the whole book, it didn't just read to me like a description of an act. It read to me like an outcry of anger on your part. And I don't yeah. know whether you meant it matter-of-factly or whether you meant it, um, it's the secret, it's about your mother and uh, your grandmother and about her um, transgressions yeah. or transgression. So yeah. I'm just interested if you could, and just in, in continuing that, tell us a little bit more about the emotive weight of the bluntness of that sentence and how that works mm. for you. You know, I, I don't think it was, uh, it was discussed a lot, as you can imagine, and I tried was making love to Dr. Lax. <laughs> and I tried, uh, you know, and, and no, nothing covered it as well as, you know, my grandmother loved sex and she had many lovers. And, you know, right into her old age, she used to talk to me about sex. So it had more to do with our personal relationship and with her pleasure in it. And I didn't, it wasn't angry or even... Um, Critical, I uh, just sort of matter of fact, matter of fact. Mm. but it was much discussed mm. and it stayed in. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting because one of my questions, related questions, uh, yeah. as I was reading the book and looking at the photographs, was how much of um, of the story did you know? I mean, at some point the mm. diaries were translated and so they told you a lot, but how much of the story did you know when you were growing up? Um, you are very reserved. You don't tell us very much about mm. your relationship to your grandmother or your grandfather. You give us mm -hmm. a few glimpses, but not, not very much. Um, mm. So can you, yeah. I, I, I really didn't know very much of the story mm. at all, which is why the translation of the diaries was so important. And mm. I, I, knew, I knew stories that my mother had told me um, fragments of story and they they centered very much on her own never having been loved and mm. and I needed to understand that um, mm. I really wanted to understand that and I was hoping and I think I, I, I do say it you know that as I as you know the translation of the diaries um, unlocked her childhood for her in many ways, but mm. they, un it all, they also unlocked some very painful other things because mm. her father doesn't write much about her. He writes a lot about her sister. And I, I didn't know much of the story, and this project was my, my, my research and my grandfather's diaries and mm. my projection and imagining on top of the photographs, you know, mm. reading them in as many ways that I could mm. um, has produced, I suppose, my version of the story. Mm. And the reservation that you mentioned, 
it's not so much in my personality to 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 be reserved, but um, my mother is still alive and yeah. and well. Yeah. And and it. I think I would have written a much more complicated version of our relationship had she not been. But there was, I, I felt like yeah. I had to protect certain things and certain privacies and, um, yeah. And did you know, did you come to know your grandparents relatively well? Did you have a sense of their personalities, of their relationship, of their past before you read the diaries? Um, only only as as it pertained to our everyday lives there was mm -hmm. no no right. um, you know aside from particular kinds of food that we ate which right. you probably grew up on i did and okay. and and you know strange english accents and and so on there was there, there was no you know very typically there was no discussion i didn't come to know anything about their past right so in a sense you are being a detective uh, in this book, very much a detective, and I thought almost a camera, <laughs> you know, turning your eye on, turning the camera on the subject, but a detective, and I think um, it, it made me sort of think about the kinds of evidence um, that are presented by photographs and by text. <laughs> um, I mean, it seems to me, that, you know, that there is, I mean, first of all, I was amazed by the kind of decoding that you did on these photographs uh, as a kind of primitive viewer of photographs. Mm. Oh, I see this is what it is and mm. this is what I sometimes remember or this is what mm. it is about. Uh, your decoding is, you know, amazingly detailed and close. It's a, it's a close reading of the photographs. Um, um, and, um, but it seems to me and, and yes, and just you know, just to mention that I was also actually very interested in what you were finding on Google and how you could manipulate Google images, and it made me think that I could do a little bit of that kind of you know <laughs> investigation. Um, but it seems to me that there is nothing more evocative than a photograph, and nothing more enigmatic, mm. <laughs> um, and that. Your, your very close readings are incredibly interesting, but sometimes, sometimes I, if, if, you know, if it's all right to confess this, I mean, my interpretation of the photographs are somewhat different, mm. uh, particularly uh, of people's expressions and gestures. <laughs> so um, so in, in this photograph, which, which uh, you were talking about, what I see in your grandmother's expression is a very rare moment of tenderness. I mean, there are not many, many uh, uh. moments of tenderness that, that are presented mm. in her photographs or, or that are presented mm. in your sort of impressions of her. Mm. But, you know, this is how, how it seems to me. Mm. Uh, you know, there are photographs of your grand-grandmother, which I read mm. somewhat differently. Uh, there is this incredibly mysterious image of the man Mm. Uh, you know, with his raised hands, mm. and I suppose, you know, one can never be certain of what it says, yeah. but my immediate sort of impression of it is that it's a kind of joke. Yeah. You know, he's, he's laughing. Yeah. And the joke is, I surrender, okay, take that shot of me. Now, of course, it was also taken 
on the very first day of the German invasion. Whether he knew this or not, we don't know, but it could be yeah. a gesture of I surrender, okay, yeah. I give up. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. So in other words, yes. So, so you know, uh, I sometimes think, you know, an image is worth a thousand words, but perhaps only if it's accompanied by a thousand words. But yeah. of course, you have the words. Uh, yeah. You know, you've done fabulous research, uh, really admirable research. It must have been very difficult. Uh, and so, you know, for example, on 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 this place called Zakopane, which of course, you know, I mean, you, those sections of the book poured all of my nostalgic heartstrings because we also used to mm. spend some vacations right near there, and these are very familiar landscapes and very familiar sites. And in a sense, it makes me, we, we, we've talked about this a little bit, it makes me think about how much was transported from across the chasm of the war from you know before the war to after but anyway maybe you can tell us a little bit about mm. what you found out was it surprising was it mm. surprising mm. what you found out about zakopane and that mode of life you know the 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 there's a there's an important sort of um first um thing to explain about my approach to reading the photographs, mm. um, which is different to the sort of factual information that, mm. that I received in my research about, about Zakopane, and that is that I, you know, when I, I you know, th this whole project, both the writing and the, and the interpretation of photographs, um, take for granted that there is no way of fixing the meaning of memory, narrative, or a photograph. Yeah. And that I think what I was most interested in was, was not so much what the subject of the photograph either offered or didn't offer to my grandfather, but what it was that he wanted. In, in my body of work as an artist, I'm always most interested in what I call the photographic interaction, the inequality, the, the, the always inequality of the photographic interaction. And to make a little bit more sense of that, you know, a the meaning of a photograph comes together through there's a subject, there's a viewer, and there's a photographer, and everybody wants something out of it, but not necessarily the same things as each other. So many of these photographs, my grandfather's looking at my grandmother, but she's not looking at him, you know. She's, they, they're often quite voyeuristic in, they often seem quite voyeuristic. Mm. Um, she's looking away, she's mm. looking just past. Um, and I was very curious at all times, and it, and again, you know, there's no answer to this question. It's only, you know, I imagine, I project, I read um, what it was that he might have wanted from from these photographs. And um, especially if he's looking at his wife and her lover. Yes. So there's yes. already a whole complicated scenario yes. that's being played out. And yes. Whatever power he might have by being behind the camera mm. is displaced from him as a man watching... Exactly. This interaction. So there are complicated yeah. 
um, yeah. you know, negotiations of power and disempowerment that yes. are going on simultaneously. Yes, and I and that's try, very powerful. And I try and write them. I mean, I try and and I try and write them. Yeah. But um, your comment that you see completely different things. My sister and I. It's always a somewhat very, different. Somewhat, yeah, yeah, they're definitely. Yeah. yeah. My sister and I, when we look at photographs together, it's as if we mm. inhabited entirely different mm. childhoods. Mm. Not necessarily these photographs, but mm. photographs. Mm. She, they, they trigger different memories, tr different associations. She was at a completely different event sometimes <laughs> than the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that that's so very powerful in the book, and it's one of the things that I really loved about it was the sense that you have in the end that um, contrary to so much popular speculation and the way in which historians often use photographs, is they provide very, very uh, uh, fragile and incomplete mm. evidence. They are not yeah. evidentiary mm. yeah. because of our capacity to read in and from mm. and against mm. the grain mm. and with yes. photographic mm. images. And by extending and enlarging and playing and going in myopically to the detail, um, you, you you open them up to us to this sort of multiple signification, mm, 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 um, which yeah. is very powerful. Indeed, indeed. But it is, of course, you know, one of the uh, powerful things about the book that you do have both photographs and text and that yes. they supplement and complement um, each other. And I think both the research and your grandfather's diary are incredibly valuable. Um, uh, valuable uh, sources of, of of information and a kind of and a kind of knowledge. Um, it, you know, the research in Zakopane, I feel, is valuable because it shows a, a, an aspect of Polish Jewish history and Polish Jewish life, which is not very well known about and which yeah. is, you, you know, largely forgotten. Yeah. Uh, and this was, you know, a period in which um, there was a, a, a growing group of uh, a Jewish intelligentsia, <laughs> um, you know, very acculturated, very literate, very cosmopolitan, uh, Jewish intellectuals, really, um, who were European. Poland was very briefly a part of Europe before the Iron Curtain, you know, came down again. Um, and this whole sort of um, extremely interesting chapter of Polish Jewish history, from which a lot of literature and and Jewish life as we know it today emerged um, mm. it has been has been neglected. So I think you know it is mm. it is very um, interesting. And of course, the grandfather's diaries are you know um, poignant and touching and incredibly interesting. I mean, uh, it seems to me that he is an incredibly sympathetic person, perhaps. Mm. You know, well, I mean, he presents himself in his text, so he has mm. that advantage. But he seems like the most sympathetic person mm. in this, in this um, constellation. Um, it, it's, he is, you know, in a sense, he, I wonder, you know, if, if you think about photography as a form of power, a form of violence, it was thought of for a while. Um, 
that I wonder if this was partly a compensation for the fact that his wife was very much the dominant person in the relationship, mm. very clearly, absolutely dominant, uh, that he is the person who, um, you know, uh, takes care of the children, makes breakfast for the children, uh, you know, puts lotion on the children's bodies when, you know, they have skin eruptions. Um, he is, you know, he is the parental parent. <laughs> he was by far the more nurturing one. Yeah. The more literary one. Nurturing. nurturing one, He was sorry. by far the more nurturing parent. By far the more, more yeah. nurturing one. Mm. And by the way, incredibly um, tolerant, perhaps because he had to be, I don't know, but mm. perhaps really tolerant of his wife's infidelities, of her flirtations. Mm. At some point he says something very touching. He says, observing her flirting kind of compulsively because she knew she had mm. to feel herself to be attractive apparently at every mm. moment of, you know, of, of, her, of her life. And he says, oddly, I pity her. I mean, it was an incredibly mm. touching and you know, really um, revealing sentence really. Um, can I, um, I wonder if, if I'm just thinking a little bit about the book as a form mm -hmm. rather than so much mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. conduit of yeah. content. We can come back to the content. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it's structured as an object because it is very interesting, not only in terms of the way in which it moves from image to text, um, but also the way in which you move between different forms of writing, whether it's the diary or whether it's uh, quotations from other literature, or whether it's the, own, the correspondence you have had with various mm. informers and uh, um, uh, historians. Mm. And um, you weave it in a way, uh, you know, like all uh, uh, very good art, one is only partially aware of the craft. Mm. But it must have been hugely complex to mm. structure and craft this thing as an object. And I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about how mm. you worked through mm. some of those decisions. Mm. Well, you know, I was, I was aware that I really didn't want this to be a Holocaust memoir, nor did I want it to be... Um, I, I wanted to, nor did I want it to be about, you know, my grandmother's love affairs, which, 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 which are an interesting thread that runs through the book. But I, I was very, it was very, very, I, I was aware that, you know, there, there's, there's quite a complex temporality. I go backwards and forwards in time. And that was a very self-conscious strategy um, that, took, that, that took a while to craft. You, you're correct. I... I found the relentless sort of daily entries of my grandfather's diaries quite beguiling at a certain point, you know, particularly when they were on long sea voyages. You know, I would find myself um, beginning to write in quite a boring way because I was following the chronology, following the journey. And it was, in fact, at, I got stuck in Baghdad, <laughs> they were in um, yeah they were in Baghdad when I had a real problem moving forward in the book, and I revised the instead of following their chronological journey, um, I broke it up into the three sections that deal with 
the book is divided into, into past li- their past lives, their journey, and then return. I call it return. It's, it's my actual physical return mm-hmm. to the apartment my mother mm-hmm. left in 1939. Mm-hmm. And it's many different attempts at returning via Google, mm-hmm. via YouTube, mm-hmm. via... Um, other people, physically myself, other people's accounts. Return is, is, is a, an extraordinary effort to, to retrieve this past. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also very conscious without being heavy-handed about it, of connecting it with the contemporary global conversation about migration and refugees that is so urgent in the world at this moment. Um, and, you know, that's something, again, that I wrote more cons- comprehensively and then pared down. Um, mm-hmm. But from the outset, I wanted to go backwards and forwards in time and inside and out of the photographs. And that was something we were discussing yesterday. On the one hand, as an artist, my practice has always been about remaining true, some kind of fidelity to an object. And for a long time, I wondered about whether I should reproduce the photographs exactly as they were, you know, front and back. Um, Some of them are inscribed on the back, but they're tiny. They're, you know, five by four centimeters, and they just would not be visible to the reader like that. Um, And I experimented, uh, and then I experimented with, with, with the way that I designed them in the book. And in the end, decided to try and let you see what I see as I blow things up on my screen, as things pixelate and disappear, you know, and, and the impossibility too in this, this digital, digital era of, of holding on to mm. the thing, you know. Mm. But I don't know how you read this, Eva, but I, I thought that was one of the most powerful book, the things about the book is, is that it so much uses the technologies of now. I mean, mm. this, you mm. couldn't have done this research without, as you say, Google and YouTube and Wikipedia and mm. especially Google mm. uh, Maps and, you mm. know, that whole mm. thing. And we couldn't have seen these photographs without a screen to mm. blow them up and expand them. Mm. And I, I love that because so m- much of memoir and life writing takes us back to the past mm. in a way that doesn't necessarily mm. foreground the technologies, the research technologies mm. of the present, mm. which now are so much part of our apparatus mm. Mm. as scholars, as historians, as writers, etc. Mm. Where And what you do is write that whole thing into it. Mm. And I think in that sense, it, it is extraordinary. It's one of the few mm. books that we have mm. now that mm. actually writes mm. that into the process. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we are living absolutely in the present yes. as we go with you on this journey. Yes. Yes, no, I thought, you know, I thought that was very uh, interesting and it did make me think, you know, that actually the internet has created new forms of memory for us. Mm. Mm. It really has. And it has allowed us to access certain things uh, and and really created, it has created um, new forms of memory. At the same time, I was thinking about... um, about you growing up in South Africa and how different it uh, must have been from my growing up in post-war Poland. Uh, I mean, Mm. that, you know, this whole past must have seemed 
extremely remote mm. uh, uh, and not easily knowable. I mean, you know, for, for me, I grew up in Poland after the war, and it, the past was nearly touchable. And it was also shared, it was shared. Uh, and I don't know if there was any collective consciousness of the Holocaust in South Africa. I, I don't know, maybe mm. you can, uh, you can uh, talk about that. Um, but you, you do say, very briefly, you touch on this, you know, that your parents uh, escaped one atrocity uh, in order to come to a place which was, in a sense, engaged in another kind of atrocity. Mm. I don't know if they were at all conscious of this. They strike me as being quite apolitical, mm. really. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when they have the right mm. to be apolitical, it, it seems to me. Uh, but, but there is a question of, you know, different relations to this past as well. Mm. Uh, and yes, and you follow, mm. yes, you do follow your footsteps and your mother's footsteps mm. from the present uh, mm. to this past, which must have seemed, well, uh, in a sense, uncanny, perhaps, especially on return. I mean, in Freud's sense of the uncanny, uh, especially for your mother, I suppose, mm. both very familiar and completely strange. Mm. But anyway, yes, so mm. yes, mm. yeah. Um, you know, t um, Tamara and I grew up, and many people in this room, in, in the Jewish community in South Africa, which was largely Lithuanian. And my grandparents were, were, were some of a very small number of quite um, highly educated. I mean, my grandmother um, had a PhD. They were secular, they didn't speak Yiddish, they were university educated, they didn't, you know, practice their religion. It was a cultural relationship, I think, like, yeah, like, yeah it was really yeah. not very, they were Poles. Yeah. And my grandfather absolutely loved Poland. Um, what I found, this is an aside, but, you know, he went to, it's in the book, but he went to high school, uh, to junior and high school with the writer Joseph Roth. Yes. Who grew up in exactly the same town and strongly identified himself as an Austrian and never stopped mourning the, Austri the demise of the Austro-Hungarian yes. Empire, which, which is a very interesting fact. The mourning about still continues. In yes. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. The sort of shifting borders, the, the, yeah. they, they were all sort of living right on the edge of, of one thing or another all, all the time. And I think that also contributed to, to that sense my grandfather had always of living the, the wrong life. But you're correct, they were apolitical. Very, and, yeah. and interestingly, the translator that I found, I, I gave a talk in Johannesburg some years ago at the beginning of this project, and a man in the audience approached me, and I showed the slide of the diaries, which isn't in the book at all. Um, the, I don't include anything in the book as an illustration. Um, the, the, the text and the images I intend to be, you know, read as, as equal, as equivalent. So I was, showing a, I was showing you that slide and somebody came up to me and he said that his father had just retired. He was a Polish physician who during, um, during in the 80s, the movement. In the 1980s, during yeah. Solidarity. During Solidarity, yeah. he'd been imprisoned and given the option of, of jail or exile, and he had chosen exile and come to South Africa with his three young sons. But he was, he, and the extraordinary thing is he was born six months before my mother in the, in the town, in a town right next to Wolf. 
and he and, and he wasn't Jewish, but he had exactly the same sensibility. He was completely preoccupied with the traumatic 20th century. And, and as he translated the diaries, you know, month after month, year after year, he became fonder and fonder and crosser and crosser with my grandfather because he was so apolitical. Right. And he kept saying, how could he come to this country and, and, and not care? You know, and he was a very politi- he was a very politically active man, the translator, Kazimierz Pater. Yeah. Well, I imagine that your parents had stayed in Poland through the war and after, if they had been lucky to yeah. survive in Poland, they would have become much more political. Yeah. But it yeah. was possible you yeah. know, to be apolitical so yeah. before the war, they transposed yeah. that. Yeah. I suppose they had no points yeah. of reference, I suppose, in yeah. which to, um, yeah. you know, to have political connections. 